Good morning, beloved congregation. The congregation that prayed for our family during Nathan's event and during my recent fight with cancer and has taken such good care of us. It's my privilege to speak to you today. I usually don't speak with notes, but after chemo brain, I'm a little afraid. Is it okay if I have my notes up here, just in case? <laughs> so it's been a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we all have so much to be thankful for. But I wondered if during this season of Thanksgiving, any of us were keenly aware of people or situations that are no longer if any of us were grieving maybe situations that we wished were but have never come to be. We want to be grateful. We don't want to be stuck in grief while everybody else is celebrating. But you can't skip right from grief to gratitude and have the gratitude be real or have any depth. You have to sit with your grief a while. And I've learned that you have to mourn what is before you can celebrate. Mm, I didn't say that right. You have to mourn what isn't. You have to mourn what you're missing, what is not, to be able to celebrate what is. And that takes courage. It takes courage to face pain and to walk through it it takes time, it takes energy, it takes imagination, and it takes faith. Faith in the God that let the bad things happen in the first place, or that hasn't brought you the good that you expected. And that can be tough. Satan is always attacking, and we're constantly affected by living in a fallen world. But scripture says that God is always doing a new thing. Scripture says that he's always working things together for our good. But it's difficult to trust God for the future when things we have prayed for so hard have not happened the way we wanted them to. It's easy to start feeling picked on or bitter or like other people have it easier than we do. Everybody has a story of brokenness. I've got mine, many, and you have yours. But we'll never get to the new place that God has prepared for us if we don't leave the old behind. The old relationship, the old situation, the former reality, the hoped for reality. And let his grace help us reframe what is and create something new. In the nature of this world is once you get to that reality, it will be attacked, it won't be perfect. That's just the nature of living in a fallen world. But the other thing is that God will be there too. And faith and hope in Jesus can get us through. Our lives are constantly in motion, and we need to be in motion as well and not get stuck in bitterness, not get stuck in what was or in what we wished were in a way that keeps us from living in what is. Everybody has a story. And we're going to look at some difficult stories today, starting with a story 
in 2 Kings that we just heard about for our children's story, 2 Kings 4, verses 1 through 7. Now the wife of a member of the company of prophets cried to Elisha, and let me just warn you, I'm a teacher and a mom, so there may be a quiz after we read. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but a creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? What do you have in the house? And she answered, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not just a few, and then go in and shut the door behind you and your children and start pouring into all these vessels. When each is full, set it aside. So she left him and shut the door behind her and her children. They kept bringing vessels to her, and she kept pouring. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. But he said to her, There are no more. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your children can live on the rest. That's a very vivid and memorable story. I read it when I was little, and now as I'm reading through the Bible again this year, but slowly, at a slow pace, I hit it again. But the Bible is so multifaceted, and you can read the same story again and again, and something new will come out. And this time, something different struck me, and we'll get to it in a second. But I want you to think about this widow. Can you imagine her anguish at losing her godly husband? the grief and the loneliness? Can you imagine her temptation to feel bitter? Because her husband was a good man. How do we know that? He was a member of what? Say it, you you were supposed to be listening. The company of the prophets, that's right. And remember she said, you know that your servant did what? Feared the Lord. Can you imagine the fear that gripped her soul as the money ran low and the food ran out and there was nothing left to sell? Where is the God of Elisha and the prophets now, she may have wondered. And when the creditor comes again, sir, I have nothing left, I can imagine her saying, I've sold everything I have. Oh yes, you have something left, he said, eyeing her children. Something I can use. And I'll be back tomorrow to get them if you don't pay up. Can you imagine the desperation, having lost her husband and now being faced with losing her children and maybe never knowing where they are? Where was the God of her husband now? Where was her God? Have you ever felt like that? I believe this widow cried out to God, And I believe he heard her prayer. And do you know why I believe that? Because into her story walks Elisha. Not into her house, I want you to notice. She didn't stay locked up in the house. She had to leave that house of sorrow and go looking for help. And I think that's instructive for us today. When she sees Elisha, she cries out to him. In the Hebrew word for cry out there is tsa'ak. And it's the same word 
used in the Bible to describe the Israelites crying out to God when they were slaves in Egypt and the burden was bitter and too much. It's the word that the Israelites used when they cried out to God when yet another enemy was attacking. It was the Philistines or it was the Arameans or or the Assyrians and God heard them and sent them another deliverer. It's the word that was used in Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that would have played out in the minds of the listeners because they knew those psalms by heart. When he moves to a part where he remembers, your people cried out to you and you answered. The widow cries out to Elisha. And that kind of cry that is deep and real gets God's attention. And it got Elisha's attention. And that godly man's heart was immediately moved. What can I do for you? He asks. And then before he moves on, he thinks, what have you got? What have you got left in the house? What are your resources? And she says, I have nothing left. And then she thinks, except a jar of oil. Was that really all she had left? Had she sold every bit of furniture? Was there nothing left but a little jar of oil? Maybe it was the last of their food. Or maybe, like some scholars believe, it was anointing oil, which would have been more expensive. And they would have gotten more from the sale of. I don't know for sure, but it's not a lot to have left. And if it was anointing oil, I wonder, had she anointed her husband with that oil? And it had failed. Seemingly her prayers had failed. What we know for sure is that the miracle started with one jar of oil. It reminds me of when Moses was asked by God, what do you have in your hand, Moses? And he looks down, a staff? Or it reminds me of when Jesus fed the 5,000, and that miracle starts with one little lunch from one little boy. And it makes me wonder, what do you have in your hands today? What do you have that maybe if you dedicated it to God, would bless you and others in unexpected ways. Elisha then gives some strange instructions. Go outside, he says, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and then he adds a phrase. Do you remember that? He says, and not what? And not just a few. And she obeys. I wonder if the three of them went door to door. My guess is yes. I don't think she would have let those boys out of her sight with a creditor around. So they're going door to door. Were they embarrassed? Like some of you may have felt when you went in gathering? Were they embarrassed because they had been door to door before? Or at least to close neighbors? Were they afraid? Were the neighbors kind? when they offered a vessel, or did they look at them with disgust? Oh, this family again. The Bible doesn't fill in these details. But finally, they have as many jars as they can collect, and they go in the house, 
and they shut the door. And don't you wonder what's in that mama's mind? Does she start pouring the first one with hope and fear? Or does she decide this would be a good teaching moment? And does she look at her children and say, kids, I want you to remember this. I'm about to pour this oil and you're about to see a miracle and I never want you to forget it. I kind of feel like she did that because moms love a good teaching moment and we're not gonna waste that. But maybe she was afraid to do that because the last time they had prayed hard, their dad had died. What we know is that with one jar of oil and many, many jars in front of them, she keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and vessel after vessel is filled until she says, bring another one. And what does the boy say? There are no more. And then the oil stops. I want to come back to that point. But it's interesting to me that she doesn't assume that she knows what the oil is for. They go back to Elisha to tell him what happened. And I bet she cried out again, but this time with gratitude and joy. Maybe the boys ran ahead of her and they wanted to tell the prophet first. All we know is that he then tells her, you have enough not just to pay the creditor and save your kids, but you sell all this oil and you will have enough to live on. You know, I don't think she would have had enough to live on if she hadn't had the faith to follow Elisha's instructions to the last letter. God honors our choices. I think if she had gathered a few, that oil jar would have filled a few. And my question for you today is, how did she have the faith to do that? How did she have the courage to open herself up, to ask for help, and go and get the jars and fill them to the last vessel when the prayer that she had prayed over her husband had not been answered? How do we? I am reminded of the words, according to your faith, be it unto you, but all of us know stories of people that had faith and what they were praying for didn't happen. I want to stop here for a second and look at just six things we can learn from the widow before we go on and look at some other stories. The first one is seek help from God. The second is voice your grief to him. Tell him like it is. He's God. He already knows what's in your heart. He already knows your anger, your bitterness, your disappointment, your doubt. Just honor him by bringing it to him. Because if you voice it honestly, he can actually help at a level that will make a difference. The third one is come out of the house of sorrow. Ladies, sometimes we get stuck in a house of sorrow. In our own minds and in our own hearts. Gentlemen, I don't know how it looks for you, but you can get stuck in a place of anger and sorrow. The fourth is seek wisdom from godly people. The fifth is do what comes to you to do after you ask for help of God and godly counselors. And the sixth is trust God and rest. Trust him and rest. 
But I'm wondering, when I say, according to your faith, be it unto you, what do we do with the times when we had faith and it wasn't unto us what we were asking for? You may be thinking I'm speaking of my cancer. Oh, no, this is a tumor. I just pray that it's not cancer. Oh, it is cancer. I just pray I don't have to have chemo. I do have to have chemo. I pray it's not too hard. Oh, it is pretty hard, but I pray that I don't have to have surgery. Oh, I do have to have surgery, a double mastectomy. Oh, wow, I have to take five years of this aromatase inhibitor that makes me feel really terrible. You know what? I'm not thinking of that. Because cancer isn't the hardest thing that's happened to me. Relational things have been harder. Things with my kids have been harder. I know somebody on the front row. It's my Aunt Carol. She has an inoperable brain tumor. And I've never seen somebody have it with more faith. Oh, Jesus will take care of it. She doesn't mean that Jesus will heal her. If he does, then it's well with her soul. And if it doesn't, it's well with her soul. I asked her yesterday when we were, she's never been to Florida. So yesterday we went to the beach and all sorts of pretty places. And he said, what's hardest about this? And she said, you know, maybe people think the hardest was giving away my things, because she has some beautiful Tiffany lamps, and, but it really wasn't. And she just ended up saying, you know, the hardest thing is probably leaving my kids, but God has promised to be with them. There is such, you know the old hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." It's sweet to trust, but it's hard when what you've prayed for hasn't come to pass. I'm reminded of my friend Krista. She and her husband believed with all their heart that their baby was going to be okay. I had been at the first death, I mean the first birth. She wanted me to be there at the second birth. Little Megan on Friday, she called me and she said, Alicia, the baby is moving around. The heartbeat looks great. Full term, I think we'll see baby Megan this weekend. And on Sabbath morning, I got a call and I thought, I am going to the hospital to help birth this baby. And instead, her voice was distressed. Alicia, pray for the baby. Something's wrong. And they prayed and they prayed. And that full term baby was born still. And nobody knows why still. Krista, I said to her, how did you keep your faith? And she said, I had it for about six months. And then I just felt mute before God. Like, I don't even know what to say to you. I, um, I still know what to say. And then she said, there'd be times I'd want to pray for something, and I'd think, why pray? He's going to do what he wants anyway. Have you ever felt that? And I said, I know that's where you're, not where you are now. How did you get back around to, to where you are now? And she said, because even when I was angry and I was not doing my part, I just had the sense that he was with me and that he hadn't deserted me and that he was there and that he was being patient and that he was waiting on me and he just loved me back to him. And then she said, and now I go ahead and I open myself up for her and I pray. I pray intensely, but I never want what I'm praying for more than I want who I am praying to.
And there is peace in that. How do you circle back? How did the widow open herself up to so much possibility of joy and blessing when she had prayed so hard with no intervention for her husband? That according to your faith, be it unto you. I looked up the context of that. It's just been something in my head since I was a little girl. Who spoke it? It was Jesus and Matthew. In Matthew 9, where he's about to heal two blind men. And I thought, yeah, but Jesus had intent to heal. We don't know when he has intent to heal this side of heaven. How do we know? How do we know how to pray? He says, ask for what you want. I have found in my life that when I can get myself comfortable with, for example, in the case of cancer, living or dying, if I can work myself down to the worst possibility and still be able to trust him and say that he is good, then it's like I'm able to hear him. It's like my spiritual ears are more open to hearing him. And sometimes he gives me a little feel for what I should pray for. But we don't always know. And yet we're always encouraged to ask Maybe because it strengthens our relationship with him. Maybe because it does make a difference. What do you do when things don't happen the way you ask Jesus to have them happen? These are crossroads in our life. In fact, many roads diverge from that road. You can diverge to hot anger or cold bitterness or a kind of Christian deism that says, yeah, I believe God started the world and I believe he's going to come get us, but I'm not sure that he ever really intervenes in the meantime. Maybe you sit in a pew week after week, but your hope has been dimmed and your faith darkened. Jesus often does not do what we expect him to do. It can be frustrating and it was the same when he walked the earth. In John chapter 6, we have the story after the feeding of the 5,000. And at that time, crowds were following Jesus. He was popular. And he knew it. And he knew that they were about to make him king by force. And it wasn't time for him to be an earthly king. And so he did something different than feed them. He said, In, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And they said, that's a hard saying. We might say, that's weird. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? They had no context for this. What do you mean? Like, you want me to, what, bite down on your arm and chew? It doesn't make any sense. Because they didn't have this due in remembrance of me. My body broken for you. My blood spilled for you. This is the New Testament. We didn't have that context. And many left him that day. But I love what Peter did, and I have referred to this often in my life. Let's look at what Peter didn't do first. Peter didn't say, when he turned to them and said, will you too leave me? No, Jesus, we're not going to leave you. We get the part about eating your body and drinking your blood. They did not say that because they did not get it. What did Peter say? 
To whom shall I go, Lord? Only you have the words of life. You see, Peter understood something about Jesus. He had a relationship. He knew what it was like without Jesus, and he knew what it was like with Jesus. And he didn't understand sometimes half of what that man said, but what he understood and what he felt when he was with him, he never wanted to be without again. So here we are back at Jesus' feet. Am I going to stay sullen and angry, or am I going to trust him again? Will I look for him to show up in different ways than I expected? Sometimes while waiting for the big thing that isn't happening, looking for him in small ways. Will I honestly grieve what isn't and then have the eyes to see what is and be grateful for it? Looping back around to our faith and being able to see what God is bringing out of the horrible and often cruel events we were hoping to avoid. The pilgrims had a lot of reasons to turn against God and to lose faith. There was treachery when they were trying to secure ships. When they finally secured ships, they lost at least one person on board. When they got to the wrong place in the continent, it was cold. And during that first winter, half of them died. 51 out of 102 were surviving when they had the first Thanksgiving. It would have been so easy for them to conclude that God was angry at them and to become bitter. And what kind of Thanksgiving would we have had then? It was with four adult women and some of, some of the girls that they fed all of the rest of the pilgrims Chief Massasoit and the remaining 90 braves. Four women and some girls. I felt a little bit like that on Thursday when I was feeding the crowd at my house. It was <laughs> quite as bad. But <laughs> what if they had not decided to be thankful? What would our heritage be at this time of year? Would it be instead of Thanksgiving, the season of bitter railing? the season of anger venting. I'm so glad they kept circling back to God, burying the dead, mourning the losses, and then being thankful for what remained. What about Jesus' mother, the, the one the Catholics call the Blessed Virgin Mary? I will admit something to you. When I was little, I used to be jealous of her, maybe not that long ago, because she got to be picked to be the one that had the Messiah. But can you imagine being in her steps as we go into Christmas? Let's just imagine a little. If Jesus is the Messiah, your son God, why did you not tell Joseph at the same time you told me? Why did you wait so long to tell Joseph? You knew ahead of time, God, when the census would be. Why did you wait until I was so pregnant to have me on this donkey and walking back to Bethlehem? There's no room for me to have the baby in? You've got to have it outside with the animals? Lord, why is the Messiah of our people going to be brought up in Egypt? Are we still on course here, Lord? 
Why is he doing nothing but carpentry for decades? Why won't our own people accept him? Why are they killing him? There are so many times that Mary could have lost faith. So many times when it looked like they were hopelessly off the plan. This isn't what I signed up for. Have you ever felt like that? This isn't how it should be. There are so many times she could have been tempted to doubt the angel's words to her. I am so glad she always circled back to have faith again. And it reminds me of what Mary said when the angel first came to her. Do you remember? Let it be unto me according to your word. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be unto me. I wonder if we said to to God, let it be unto me according to your will, if it would be easier for him to say, according to your faith, be it unto you. God's will, not mine. Can we trust him through the insanely incomparably hard and believe he is still sovereign, still loving, still good? When you look at the widow's life, or Mary's life, or your own life, or Paul's life, who was writing about joy between imprisonment and beatings, can you imagine saying, as Ellen White says, we will in heaven, I wouldn't change a thing. But we know that God can take loss and bring beauty from ashes. Like the pilgrims think giving, bounty after scarcity, rejoicing after mourning, grief through grace, that becomes gratitude. Over and over again, if we stick with God, we'll see it. I read once that if we could filter the events that happen to us, not through our broken hearts, but through the lens that God is good, how much better off we would be. What have I found in my greatest disappointments? That if I will stick in there with trust and love during the surprisingly awful things that happen, I will be surprised by the really unexpectedly good things that come from it. I'm going to give you one last example. This is Amy Purdy. She was a young woman, finished high school. She had grown up in desert in California, and she was ready to leave the desert. Her passion was snowboarding, and she was going to go where there was snow. So she was a massage therapist. She packed up her massage table, and she went where there was snow, and she was living her dream. She got a flu, what she thought was a flu one weekend, and um, went to the hospital because it kept getting worse and worse. Eventually, they found out it was cerebral meningitis, and she lost the hearing in her left ear, her spleen, kidney, uh, at least one kidney and a problem with the other, and both her legs below the knees. She was devastated. There was a little hope because eventually they were going to bring her prosthetic legs, but when they brought her these rubber, yellow, thick prosthetic legs with a ridge up the line of uh, the leg, she just went into depression. And I have a picture of her for months. She slept her time away. But somewhere, her imagination started to work again. And her faith kicked in. She used to ask herself when she was a little girl, 
if I was writing the book of my life, what would I write next? What would I want it to say? And so her imagination kicked in again, and she thought, you know, if I have prosthetic legs, I could be as tall as I wanted to be. I wouldn't have to be 5'5". Five five. In fact, I could change my legs to be whatever height it was of the guy I was dating. And I could make my feet be the size that's always on the shoe rack. And she just started to dream, and that's where it started. And eventually, her dreams took her to trying to snowboard again. She said there was one really surprising moment when she was first snowboarding, and something went wrong, and down the hill went her snowboard and her legs. And how surprised and shocked she and the people watching were. A little horrifying. I want you to hear, in her own words, the last three minutes of a TED Talk by Amy Purdy. And this is when I learned that our borders and our obstacles can only do two things. One, stop us in our tracks. Or two, force us to get creative. I did a year of research, still couldn't figure out what kind of legs to use, couldn't find any resources that could help me. So I decided to make a pair myself. My leg maker and I put random parts together, and we made a pair of feet that I could snowboard in. As you can see, rusted bolts, <laughs> rubber, wood, and neon pink duct tape. And yes, I can change my toenail polish. <laughs> it was these legs and the best 21st birthday gift I could ever receive, a new kidney from my dad, that allowed me to follow my dreams again. I started snowboarding, then I went back to work, then I went back to school, then in 2005 I co-founded a nonprofit organization for youth and young adults with physical disabilities so they could get involved with action sports. From there, I had the opportunity to go to South Africa, where I helped to put shoes on thousands of children's feet so they could attend school. And just this past February, I won two back-to-back -back World Cup gold medals. <laughs> Which made me the highest-ranked adaptive female snowboarder in the world. Eleven years ago, when I lost my legs, I had no idea what to expect. But if you asked me today if I would ever want to change my situation, I would have to say no. Did you hear Because that? my legs haven't disabled me. If anything, they've enabled me. They've forced me to rely on my imagination and to believe in the possibilities. And that's why I believe that our imaginations can be used as tools for breaking through borders. Because in our minds, we can do anything. And we can be anything. It's believing in those dreams and facing our fears head on that allows us to live our lives beyond our limits. And although today is about innovation without borders, I have to say that in my life, innovation has only been possible because of my borders. I've learned that borders are where the actual ends, but also where the imagination and the story begins. So the thought that I would like to challenge you with today 
is that maybe instead of looking at our challenges and our limitations as something negative or bad, we can begin to look at them as blessings. Magnificent gifts that can be used to ignite our imaginations and help us go further than we ever knew we could go. It's not about breaking down borders. It's about pushing off of them and seeing what amazing places they might bring us. Did you hear her say that she wouldn't change it? Already this side of heaven? Did you hear her say to move forward, I had to let go of the old Amy and embrace the new Amy? What do you need to let go of today? A disappointment, something that never came to be, something that you thought, this is not what I signed up for. What is the grief in your heart today? God is here in the building with us. And his grace and his mercy is available. I would like you to take, if you're in the middle rows, or if you're in the, on the right there, I can't think of how to say it. If you're in the middle, there are little pieces of paper. Will you take those and pass them down to everybody on your row? And I want you to be thinking what you want to bring to God today. What do you need to give to him? Bring him your grief, bring him your gratitude. And how might he reframe it to turn grief into gratitude and joy today? He isn't afraid of our grief and it isn't wrong to grieve things, but we have to grieve them honestly to be able to see what remains and be grateful. So this morning, I'm going to leave you a little time to offer up your sorrow and bitterness, your doubt and your pain, so you will have space for gratitude. There's a poet, Khalil Gibran, that said, sorrow and joy come from the self-same well. And the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Bring whatever is in your heart as an offering to God this morning. Bring it to the seat of mercy. Decide to trust him again. I'm going to read the first verse of the song, the first hymn we'll be singing. Come, ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts. Here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. As we sing and as you bring your grief, these will not be read, they will be burned up to the mercy seat this morning. I'm going to ask Pastor Tim to be here by the grief basket and Pastor Jeff will be here by the gratitude basket as you write and come today. Come to the 
us pray. Lord, you know our hearts before we've come. You know today the things that we've brought with us, the moments in our life that brought sorrow and suffering and pain. You know that these things come sometimes unexpected as strangers coming into our house and we don't know what they're going to do to us, but we feel the pain. Today we have those moments of grief and it seems the longer we live, the more they accumulate over time. And Lord, you know that they hurt us because you understand our grieving. You know the suffering. Because you designed us differently. You designed us to never understand grief. You designed us to never experience pain. You designed us to be built for love, built for joy, built for experiencing all the wonders of your grace. And so you understand what sin has done, the pain that we feel through disappointments, through the things that come in our lives that cause us to hurt so deeply. But then this world, strangely enough, none of these are surprises to you. You know them, you see them as they come, and yet you've given us reason to hope. Because you've given us Jesus who suffered, who bore that pain so that we could live again. So that we could find joy and hope in your love. So now help us to release those to you. Help us to let our grief be in your care. And come back to trust once more. Come back to find joy in you. Come back to know that you always love us and you're faithful and your love will never abandon us or leave us while we turn to you. So thank you, Lord, for taking our grief and once more making us whole. We ask in Jesus' name. And God, who so loved the world that you gave your only Son, we who believe in your Son this day come into this place with hearts filled with thanksgiving. We have carried sorrow, all have, yet, Lord, the glory of being invited into your presence to be called sons and daughters of God is a surpassing glory beyond all suffering of this place. We have confidence in your promises. I am the resurrection and the life. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again. And in this life, you've given us so many markers of your goodness and love. Lord, we thank you today for the wealth of blessing that is ours. We pray that you will open our eyes today, and that we will be out of the house of sorrow and fully praising your name with the redeemed on this earth who today give thanks for the goodness of God, for the love of God, for family, for friends, 
for this place, for this land, for our lives. And as long as our lives shall go, Lord, give us the strength to give you praise. May God is good be the words on our lips each day as we walk along, not in the doubt of the times that have gone, but in the hope of the day that is to come, in the promise that you will make all things new, in the love you've shown for us through Jesus, in the confidence of eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to the power that was, is within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen.